Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 271, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Paul Sternberg and Dr. Ravi Parikh discuss a recent publication about malpractice cases brought against ophthalmology trainees over the past two decades. We discuss the lessons you can take from this paper, what sort of things are important to impart to trainees to prevent malpractice and litigation, what sort of things should medical educators do to protect themselves and their mentees from this, and what this means going forward in terms of building out good practices for the rest of your career. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by two of our retina colleagues. First, working uh, south to north, Dr. Paul Sternberg. Dr. Sternberg is the chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at the Vanderbilt Eye Institute. He is also the chief medical officer of the Vanderbilt Medical Group. Dr. Sternberg, thanks so much for joining us to lend some expertise. Well, thank you for inviting me to talk on this very interesting topic. I look forward to our conversation. And next, we have Dr. Ravi Parikh uh, in New York City. He is at Manhattan Retina and Eye Consultants and also faculty at New York University. Ravi, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this conversation was inspired by an article that Ravi uh, and his group recently published. And uh, Ravi, you've done a number of interesting publications. This one, no different. And this one's about medical malpractice and trainees. So in short, you know, tell us a little, our, our listeners who haven't read the article a little bit about what you looked at and what did you find? What are kind of the most common types of cases that trainees and ophthalmology residency are involved in when it comes to malpractice litigation that's filed? Sure, yeah. So um, basically, we looked at um, publicly available reported uh, malpractice cases that um, explicitly said that trainee or um, was involved, so a resident or fellow. And the most common um, things we found were about 70% were from a procedural um, outcome where a patient felt that there was negligence and about 30% was something in clinic. So what we found was the most common things were that were alleged was that there was a um, delay in evaluation, um, incorrect diagnosis or treatment, um, improper informed consent, and then um, lack, lack of knowledge of trainee involvement, and then failure to supervise uh, the trainee, um, and then as well as um, error in technique uh, due to the trainee involvement. So those are the major um, allegations where patients felt uh, like neg- negligence uh, occurred involved in the training. And, and I would assume that the majority of these cases, just because, again, residents tend to be most involved and do the most uh, surgically in cataracts, are, are the most of these cataracts patients or other types of patients? Um, so they span the gym. So cataracts are um, what? one of the surgeries that were residents were most involved in as far as the procedural thing. Um, however, there was an issue also with, um, you know, delay evaluation, for example, phone calls were a major issue where someone would call on the phone or um, a resident would see, a patient would call on the phone and then someone wouldn't see them in person. Or um, another issue would be like a, a, a attending with my staff, a resident on the phone. And there was some type of miscommunication uh, like Dr. Sternberg mentioned uh, which was a main issue, uh, kind of precipitating uh, a lot of these issues um, with uh, the malpractice cases. 
You know, Dr. Sternberg, I'd love to get your, your input on the, the idea of phone calls. Uh, and we have an expansion of phone calls now. Again, this study period started way back in the 90s, but now we have emails, we have uh, in-basket messages from patients if you use an EPIC system or another EMR, uh, maybe text message or cellular voicemail messages if a patient has your, your personal cell phone or cell phone. I mean, obviously you want to protect yourself from litigation and documentation is, is super critical. Um, what, I mean, from your perspective, as someone who's, who's leading a department, but also is involved in the whole medical group, what are kind of the most appropriate ways to, to handle that sort of communication, right? Is it better to funnel it all into one sort of system where documentation is cleaner uh, from a legal perspective? And then again, one of the lessons it seems that we learned from this, which is the lessons our attendings taught us is when in doubt, you know, you should ask patient to be evaluated if you, if you weren't sure. And that's sometimes what was alleged in many things that patient, you know, wasn't evaluated promptly enough. How do we kind of balance that with not being excessively defensive, especially now in the context of, for example, a pandemic where now in the peak of a pandemic, you maybe patients don't want to be exposed by coming in to, to get checked. I think that the critical aspect is that, that you need to document your interactions with the patient. and. Um, Obviously, if it's uh, done through a patient portal, you know, uh, like like Epic has, uh, those communications are very easily accessible. And if it's a phone conversation, then you need to put a note uh, in the chart that indicates that that the patient called, uh, was concerned about um, their pain after their cataract operation, and that you uh, been happy to meet them in the emergency room. That, that that you'll, you know, whenever it's convenient for them, you know, think that they should come in right away. And the patient uh, felt that they were uncomfortable coming in uh, to COVID. And, and that you expressed to them concern that this could be an infection and uh, that all proper precautions would be taken, but that you're really, that they really need to come in and they declined. Uh, you, you know, that in the chart, the patient has your ability will be substantially different than if there is no note in the chart and you get to post and say you had a conversation with the patient that I have no recollection of that conversation. I, I did talk to the doctor. He said, you know, if you're uncomfortable coming in, let's just, you know, let's give it a, you know, a couple days and see how you do. And, and, and so having that, if you have a conversation and, and you, know, you what you recommend and what the response of the patient was. Right. I think such a common thing that I get asked by former fellows or trainees a lot of times is just they're just it, it, it comes down to, to just sometimes not wanting to inconvenience someone, which, again, from a legal perspective, won't hold up in court. But sometimes the patient's like, oh, you know, the ER is so far and I don't wait there. And, and coronavirus being just another example, I'm not saying that people are making excuses. These are legit concerns. But I, this is where people sometimes get into trouble is where they're like, well, I didn't want to inconvenience them, so I, I didn't do that. And then they don't document that. And, and then if you don't document that, then you're kind of sunk. Like I've seen examples even, you know, patient post-op day one after cataract surgery, you know, apparently everything was fine. They said that things weren't fine. And then three days later, they had enophthalmitis. But then the post-op day one exam notes, for example, weren't completed or were copied forward from the pre-op exam and still said there was a cataract and not an intraocular lens. So I mean, there's definitely some some quagmires that we can all fall into, but but especially for trainees, it's important to learn these early. Uh, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on, on that, Dr. Sternberg, 
or any other sort of common scenarios where people can get into trouble? I, I think the, the I think the two most common scenarios are number one, and that unfortunately we are human and we maybe it's inconvenient for us to come in and we may send a message consciously or unconsciously that, that the patient doesn't need to be seen. And the second thing is our failure to document those inner conversations. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, we do have to have a low threshold for responding to patient concerns, particularly as a trainee. You know, that, you know, as, as an, uh, an attending, uh, we, uh, as an experienced physician, you felt better um, ability to judge the patient's symptoms and severity of their complaints uh, over time uh, with conversation. You still might make mistakes, but you're going to be better at it. But as a trainee, you're not. And, and so the message that, that I provide to the trainees is low threshold, err on the conservative. Make sure it's very clear that you're willing to see them. If the decision is made for them not to come in, it needs to be their decision, not yours. The door has to be open. If you don't open the door, then you're opening your, then, and that shut door is actually uh, one that'll be opened by the lawyer. Great points. And, and Ravi, I'm going to bring you back in because this kind of ties again back to the paper that I, I, I found it fascinating when I looked at the, the cases and the data with you. I felt like I could hear certain attendings saying certain lessons that applied to every single case. Only made me wonder are these they've kind of passed generation to generation, certain lessons or lore. Were there any sort of scenarios that surprised you where you're like, oh, like that's a scenario I didn't really think about or something that I want to file away for my trainees or, or et cetera to be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, like just to echo what uh, Dr. Sternberg said, so, you know, as a trainee and even now in practice, um, I'm like highly paranoid. So I always offer everyone to come in and, um, you know, not to overly scare Paranoid's people. Paranoid's a good thing. Paranoid's a good thing. <laughs> Thank you. And, and to give an accurate assessment of what you think, is, especially, you know, with, because, um, for example, I've seen as a trainee, you know, uh, an attendings patient where um, they got like an Ozerdex, I think the day before, and then the next day, people were like, oh, why are you bringing that person in? You know, they wouldn't have endophthalmitis a day later, but they ended up having like, um, like a sterile endophthalmitis, basically where they had all this detritus and, you know, and I've even seen, uh, you know, where someone else might've been like, oh yeah, yeah you're fine. Just, you had an, they had a, like an injection of Avastin or Ilea or something. And um, they had a little pain. Someone's like, oh, you know, just use some artificial tears and try the betadine. And then they came back with like raging endophthalmitis and had to be taken for a vitrectomy. So, you know, uh, so my threshold is always, you know, very, very low because um, like as Dr. Sternberg, you know, no matter how experienced you are, you know, things happen. And especially as a trainee, when you're seeing you know, a lot of other people's patients, you might not be as familiar with the patient. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, higher pathology just coming through. People that have trauma, people have had, you know, they might have, you know, had so many things going on. Um, and then, you know, back to the cases, we kind of saw a lot of the things we just discussed in all these cases. Like, um, I, th I think one thing that was kind of interesting was, there was someone, apparently they lost the case, but where they alleged that um, someone wasn't responsive to them uh, when they started having symptoms of a retinal detachment. They started seeing a curtain over their vision. And what they claimed was the person who saw them 
um, at their follow-up. So they had like a one-week follow-up, I believe, and the retina was attached. But when that physician saw them, they spent like, like only a very short amount of time apparently with them. And they calculated out based on how many patients they had, how much time they could wow. have like mathematically spent with them. And um, that person was very astute. But what they should have probably argued was when they called and had, you know, after that post-op appointment um, and had started having symptoms of the curtain coming over their vision, the person on the phone was just like, oh, yeah, you're fine. Just go to your scheduled follow-up as is. And so that was actually the error. But um, the case went for the defense uh, because uh, I think it seemed like the person was arguing the wrong thing. So that was kind of an interesting case. Yeah, that, that's fascinating because that's, that just shows that anything can be pulled. Your clinical schedule for that day could be analyzed and, and then they could bring someone up and say, you know, bring an expert witness and say, in your reasonable opinion, could, is this enough time to diagnose X, Y, or Z? Uh, really, really fascinating, especially in a field where, again, we have sometimes very short encounters because of very, very, um, you know, large clinics, depending on your practice setting. Oh, and this is a retina podcast. So we're going to tie this into some retina things and I'll get your thoughts for first, Dr. Sternberg. I find when I talk to my fellows and residents about retina symptoms, it's even more pronounced because I think retina symptoms are just so nebulous. I think that on the spectrum of, you know, photopsias, vitreous detachment, retinal tear, retinal detachment, it's sometimes, I think as you get experienced, when you meet a patient, you can kind of tell maybe, okay, this is more likely to be a tear. There's probably going to be hemorrhage based on description of floaters, things like that. But I really think that it's impossible to kind of suss that all out over a phone call, or even in person without taking a look. And it's even trickier in post-ops. I think post-ops can be even harder, whether they're post-op from a laser uh, or post-op from retinal surgery. And you know, I've seen instances in colleagues, for example, where patient calls saying they're seeing blurry and they still have a gas bubble, and the fellow says, "Oh, you're fine. Come back to your scheduled appointment in two weeks." And then they actually have, you know, a detachment that's detaching as the gas bubble's going away. And maybe you could save the macula from detaching if you bring that patient earlier. I mean, I just think that for retina patients, maybe it's again too cautious, but I, I tend to just have them examined because I think it's People are just too all over the place. The spectrum is too wide in terms of what people experience. I don't know if that's been your experience as well, Dr. Sternberg. Well, it, it, it has been, and, and one of my pet peeves and and and, uh, and real residents will will sell me out on this one has been uh, the the patient with the symptoms of a PVD retinal tear, and 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 our our, our residents are very good about bringing those patients in to be evaluated, even with with more subtle symptoms that may turn out to be a, a migraine, but they then uh, have a, a, after a few months into their first year, they develop this very low threshold for asking for help. And so we'll see these patients that came in with flashing lights and floaters, and the first year resident will say, you know, seen, examined, 360, depressed, no tear seen. Well, you're a retina attending, all three of us. How, how good do you think a first year resident is at identifying a peripheral retinal break. You right. know, I, I'll, I'll go out and women think it's pretty crappy. And um, now, granted, you know, they may be pretty good at looking at whether their cells in the anterior vitreous, but their ability to find a tear is, is going to, unless it's enormous, uh, is going to be pretty minimal. And, and the number of patients that come in to see me a couple of days later in clinic for follow-up that have a tear uh, is, is real. It's real enough that I've basically said the first years need to get at least the third year resident mm -hmm. to come in, if not a retina fellow or an attending. And so mm -hmm. there, there is, you know, in addition to the documentation, uh, you also have to be 
you know, develop uh, a good ability to get help when you need it as a trainee, uh, because you you can get into trouble if you over exaggerate your skill set. Right. No, that, those are great points. Training. And I think knowing your limitations is important. And, and no matter how good you are, there's going to be limitations at any level, especially when you're training. I, I find I agree with that. I think one of the, the ways around it, we've been talking about the patient who calls. But there's sometimes a question, what do you do with the patient in front of you? And I think if you're not sure, I, and I really emphasize this to my residents, for example, if they have a tear and they're not quite sure that they barricaded appropriately, don't bring that patient back to clinic in two weeks, especially if the high-risk horseshoe tear. Bring them back in a day or two because you can prevent that patient from detaching. And even more importantly, prevent that if they detach, prevent the macula from detaching if you catch them early enough. There's got to be that sense of if you're Perfect. not sure what's going on, especially as a trainee, shorten the follow-up interval. If you, it, have someone see it and then shorten the follow-up interval to seeing someone who will be comfortable seeing it. Uh, Ravi, I don't know if you have additional thoughts on this subject. Yeah, I think the important thing um, along with that is there also needs to be a proper like feedback mechanism because oftentimes, you know, when people are on home call, the, it tends to be sometimes the, the thought, whether correctly or not, is that like, oh, this person is so good because they can just handle everything and they don't call. Those are great points, Dr. Sternberg. And, and I think we've spent a lot of time talking about patients, for example, reaching out when they're not in the office. But you brought up this point of when you're not sure what you're seeing, what do you do as a trainee? And I think the critical thing there is get help and also shorten the follow-up. I've seen examples of patients, for example, that, that they have a tear that needs to be lasered and someone lasers it. And they're not quite sure they got the barricade, but the follow-up interval isn't appropriate for that uncertainty. There needs to be a shorter follow-up interval because it could turn into a detachment. I treat it almost like an untreated tear. They should come back within a day or two. You should evaluate them more frequently because there's a risk that it could turn into something worse. I think the same is true if you have a post-op. If you have a post-op who has a cytel positive wound, for example, I think it's important to, to keep close tabs on them and not just go out, even though, like you said, for convenience factors, sometimes it's easier to have the follow-up be longer. Uh, Ravi, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on, on retina symptoms, retina guidance for trainees, and also the idea of shortening follow-up. Um, do you also subscribe to that? Like, if you're not sure in a post-op or any sort of complex patient, just keep the follow-up interval shorter? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to keep the follow-up interval shorter. And also, and I think the patients will appreciate it if you're not sure to get, you know, another opinion. Because they'll be like, oh, well, just, to, you know, and I think sometimes patients actually appreciate that. They're like, okay, well, this person wants another doctor to take a look. And in some ways that can be reassuring. But I think sometimes um, we have to make sure there's like an appropriate feedback mechanism where someone isn't almost being penalized, being like, oh, why does this person need to, why is this person shortening the follow-up? Are they not sure? I think sometimes people are afraid and there needs to be kind of more of a, sometimes an encouraging culture where it's not like you're penalized when someone's saying, oh, you're a bad resident or you're a bad fellow because you're not sure or you need help. And I think, I think that goes a long way. And if anything, I think sometimes the patients appreciate it that you're keeping like a closer watch on them because as we've seen in a lot of these malpractice cases, um, whether warranted or not, at least the allegation from the patient side that they felt, uh, the allegation of negligence, which is what you need to make that a malpractice case, not just a bad outcome, is that they weren't, um, you know, that, you know, that the physicians were being kind of dismissive or were not appropriately following up on their concerns. But, but I think, Ravi, just like it's important for us to ask the train and encourage the trainee to have a low threshold for asking for help, it's incumbent on the senior physician to create a culture, an environment where uh, the, the trainee feels comfortable reaching out to them. 
that that we don't that we don't make them feel like we're bothering them or annoying them or that it's an inconveniencing them. Uh, rather, we welcome uh, them asking us questions or asking for our help. And and that can be hard because we're busy and we have kids and we have lives. Uh, but but when we're on call and it's our patients, we have to be available for for, for those trainees. Great great points. And I think. I think both of your points tie into the last subject, which we can't talk about malpractice without talking about communication, because a lot of the one of the biggest things they say about patients who file malpractice suit is that there there is a lack of communication, sometimes a lack of connect connectivity between the patient and the physician that they are suing. Right? There obviously has to be something go wrong, but not every case that goes wrong ends in malpractice. In fact, many of those patients never pursue malpractice. So there's Dr. Sternberg, you referenced the communication between the trainee. And the supervising physician. I think as supervising physicians, we have to open those lines of communication. Like when I'm on call, you know, I, I the fellows know. Like, let me know about my patients. I want to hear about my patients. You know, this is my cell phone. This is my email. This is my. If you text, if you need to reach me, text me or call me. Like, I think it's important to keep those lines because, as you said, we can't turn around and blame a trainee if they're in a, if they're being basically told directly or indirectly not to communicate with their superior, whether it's a first year with a senior resident or an attending with a fellow, those lines of communication have to be open. But we have to talk a little bit about communication between the doctor and the patient lines of communication, because I feel like another common scenario I'll see, whether it's trainee, but more commonly in the community is a patient who has a bad outcome with a patient, with a physician, they go for a second opinion somewhere else. And then one of the angry things that makes them angry or upset is they feel like, well, that doctor has never tried to reach me. Now, they may be out of sight, out of mind, because they're not even seeing that doctor anymore. But I wonder if that's where I think kind of maintaining those lines, if you do have a complication or an issue, to keep the lines of communication open, if, encourage a second opinion, but also continue to reach out so the patient feels like there's, you're still invested in their situation. I, Dr. Sternberg, I don't know if you've seen that as well, where that plays a big role in whether or not you end in malpractice. Well, yes, I think that is that is true. But I think it also, it, it, it's important that uh, you maintain good relations with your colleagues in the community. So although you True. are competitors in the community, it's really important for you not to throw them under the bus and, and in return to hope that they won't throw you under the bus. And we all know that there are ways that we can identify situations where perhaps we don't think the care was ideal without throwing our colleague from across town under the bus. And we, and, and, and we have to be very thoughtful in what we say to the patient under these circumstances. Ravi, you're obviously in a retina market where there's, they used to joke about New York, there's a retina doctor in every corner. Uh, again, I'm sure you see a lot of second, third, fourth opinions sometimes. Uh, do you agree with that, that stance about the, the relationships between you and your other colleagues in the city? Um, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you always, um, you know, even at you know, some of the most famous retina person, their patient, you know, this is the nature of New York City is the patient is going to have um, another opinion somewhere else. And, you know, it's kind of it's like karma. So if, if you start throwing people under the bus, or of course, you always need to be honest with the patient. Um, you know, it's going to come back on you because it's, you know, you're always, you always need your colleagues as well because there's always going to be a time you might be out of town. You might need someone to cover you. Uh, you might need, you know, just help on a case. And so um, I think having more of a cooperative environment is uh, definitely key. And unfortunately, and, yes, and there sometimes, is a retina specialist on every Yeah, there, there certainly is. And, and, you know, there will be egregious, there will be negligence. And, and, and I don't want you to, I don't want anyone to take home from this that I'm, I'm telling you to shut up if there's, if there's gross negligence. But, but most of these cases are not gross negligence. Right. Most of these cases are subtle. 
and they're just bad outcomes, which we know happens in, in what we do. And the other thing is if you do see the second opinion uh, for the unhappy patient, call the doctor that did the primary surgery. Let them know that, that I saw Dr. Peruk's patient uh, for a second opinion because they uh, were concerned about the effectiveness of the, they came in and they didn't get lasered and then they got a detachment and, and, and tell Dr. what you said to the patient. Um, and, 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 and that also may be a circumstance at which point Dr. Preet will want to notify his insurance company or his malpractice attorney, just give them a heads up that there is this unhappy patient. And, and, you know, we're, we, we really try very hard at our institution to identify those unhappy patients or those bad outcomes early on. Get, make sure we know that they're, on, they're, they're in, in the hopper and try to be uh, proactive in, in addressing the patient's concerns. Uh, it, you'll be much more successful than if you're reactive. And, and I will just echo Dr. Schimmer, I was about to say, I think we all are on the same page. This isn't about, sometimes patients are like, oh, the doctors are, are colluding to hide the bad outcomes. That's not what we're talking about. I think we're talking about the humility part of it, where we've all had patients where things don't look exactly the way we like it or don't go the way we like it. And when you see another doctor's, for example, post-op, you don't know exactly what happened during the surgery, what the circumstances were, what exactly happened. And you have to give people the benefit of the doubt, unless, as you said, there's absolute gross negligence. Like, for example, lasering the fovea is one of the few things where there's like, okay, there, that, that is clearly something that should not have happened. Many other things, like you said, are subtle and, and could have happened to anyone in that circumstance. And have, unfortunately, if you operate enough, it will happen to all of us. Uh, I'm going to let you guys both give one kind of last pearl before we close. Uh, Dr. Sternberg, any last pearls? We have a lot of trainees who listen. For, I think, obviously, listening to their attendings, communicating. We talked about learning to give good follow-up, asking for help. Anything else from your perspective that's, that's important for them as they head out into the world uh, in the next year or two? I think the most important thing is um, to be open uh, and to not be overly defensive. Um, and also recognize that that um, your institution, the, you know, will do everything they can to get the trainee dismissed from the lawsuit. That they do not want this to be a blemish on your record, and you're generally represented by the institution, which has much deeper pockets than you do. And in almost all cases, uh, the plaintiff's attorney will drop you from the suit. Uh, if you can get the institution to just remind them about that, uh, regardless of, of, of the outcome, let's get your, you off the suit while you're a trainee. Perfect. And Ravi, any last words of wisdom after doing this project that you'd want to pass on to the next generation? Sure. Well, first of all, yeah, to echo everything Dr. Sturmer said, so much more wisdom than I do. But I think one thing that um, with younger physicians and trainees can take from this is, uh, one, the importance of communication, uh, especially because I think sometimes the premium is put on, like, who is the most efficient, which, as a trade, you know, translates into, like, who's the fastest sometimes, unfortunately. So, so communication, and then also just considering, um, even though sometimes, uh, you know, how important the patient experience is, and even though there are cases where, you know, the patient allegation is not medically, you know, accurate or in all faith there's still an important part of care um, and it's beneficial to you as well as the patient and everyone involved that the patient, you know, is, um, has a good experience and that, I mean, obviously the medical outcome is the most important thing, 
but uh, making sure the patient is confident this important part in you that's a good part of the relationship and as well as them having a a, a positive experience so that when you do do a good job or you are doing the appropriate thing it's also recognized and that just benefits everyone the patient the physician and you know the profession as a whole so i think that's an important thing to just always consider that obviously that shouldn't be you know, overarch the medical concern, but just to always keep in mind and, um, you know, more and more that's getting emphasis, the whole patient experience. Very good points. And patients are human beings and, and we all want to be treated like human beings. And that's also part of it. So, uh, Dr. Sternberg, Dr. Parikh, thank you so much for your time for joining me discussing this interesting topic. Ravi, uh, congratulations to you and, and the rest of the team that put this together. Uh, a great, great article. It offers a lot of insight into malpractice when it comes to trainees. Uh, have a great night, guys, and thank you for joining. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. As always, a list of relevant financial disclosures are in the episode description. There is also a link to claim CME credits on the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. Many thanks to Dr. Paul Sternberg and Dr. Ravi Parikh for joining me for this episode. As always, you can find this podcast episode and many other podcast episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 271 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. In addition, you will find links to subscribe so you can get updates on the most recent episodes directly to your email in basket. We can also find us on the podcast app on your mobile device or in the Apple Podcasts and Android Podcasts app. You can reach us on Facebook or on Twitter at Retina Podcast. You can also always email us directly by clicking on the contact us link on our website or emailing me at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We love getting feedback, things we can do better as we head into 2021, and we also appreciate all the positive reviews you've left in the Apple Podcast Store. Many thanks again to our contributors for this episode. Thanks to Drs. Louis Kai, Angela Chang, and Mike Benacasa for handling the production and social media, as they have done admirably over four-plus years. Thanks to all of you for the patient care you've delivered, articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay Schreeder, signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.